In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally Welcome Sally, Sally, to Sally, the 11th episode in this second season of YDHTY, the home for those of us outside of the us versus them, red versus blue political dialogue. I'm looking at you, independents. I'm looking at you, minor party voters. And I'm looking at myself in my own screen because I'm one of you. Now, if you're new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today and know other people like yourself who dig it, be sure to forward this on. There are more of us than there are folks in either of the two major parties, and we need more people like you in the conversation. Now, we are at the fourth and final installment in our series on Afghanistan, and as always, we are ending it with my dear friend, Arjun Murthy of The Factual, a website and newsletter that helps people find the most informative news by scoring stories based on partisan lean and credibility while also providing insight into important and underreported stories of the day. And it's one of my go-to news sources, as its business model is built on informing people rather than raising their blood pressure so they raid share stories on social media. Over the month of August, The Factual ran several polls asking readers how they felt about the situation in Afghanistan. And I wanted to see how this lined up with what I learned about the conflict in recording episodes one and two, and also whether we appear to have learned anything as a people about getting involved in foreign wars. The short answers are quite nicely and no. We will elaborate further in this episode. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. To start off, you ran a few polls related to Afghanistan. Yes. And for the listener, can you can you just talk about what those questions were? Yeah. So over the course of August, we asked four questions around Afghanistan, which is quite a lot for one topic. Normally, there's so much going on in the news. You don't tend to repeat a topic at least every two or three months. But Afghanistan just uh, dominated the scene in August. So the first question that we asked was probably the one, this is early in August, we said, should the U.S. military continue its withdrawal from Afghanistan? We could see sort of everything crumbling around as the withdrawal was continuing. And we're asking people, what do you think? Should we keep doing it or not? Then about a week later, we uh, had sort of the inevitable next question, which is, could the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan have been prevented? By now, it was clear the Taliban had overrun the entire country. Could we have had a different outcome? And so we pulled folks on that. Then a few days later, we talked about refugees. And the question was, should the U.S. accept more refugees? It's a very interesting question, of course, given as the country is falling apart and we saw a lot of people fleeing, uh, what is the U.S.'s responsibility and role to refugees? And then finally, uh, a week later, there was that horrible tragedy where uh, I think 12 U.S. uh, service members, or maybe 13, were killed by a bomb set by ISIS-K, it's a terrorist cell. And uh, so we asked our audience, our readers, should the U.S. collaborate more with the Taliban to stop ISIS-K? And, you know, both of these groups are not particularly popular, of course, in the United States. But is, there a, is, there, is this a case of the lesser of two evils and you partner up with the Taliban? So those are the four questions that we asked. 
how did the answers to those questions break down in terms of maybe larger polls we see out there on the subject? I think uh, we mirror a lot of the larger polls that we see for some of these. So let's take the first one. You know, should the U.S. military continue its withdrawal? 52% said yes. 27% said no. 21% said unsure. And the sample size, 368 votes, so a decent sample size. And I think, generally speaking, most Americans were in favor of a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Even after the fact, I think people understood that it was sort of an unwinnable situation. And if you define the mission as we were there to get Osama bin Laden, then that was accomplished a long time ago and it was time to go. If you define the mission more broadly as nation building and helping Afghanistan become a democracy and helping to ensure women's rights and all kinds of other issues that Americans believe in, then of course we were nowhere near the finish line there and we should stay longer. But I think the majority of Americans and certainly our readers are saying it's time to go. As bad as it is, as bad as things are, are coming, it's time to go. But it wasn't an overwhelming majority, 52%. Uh, but like I said, I think that reflects the nation as well. I'm really interested in the people who thought we should stay because generally it seems the consensus opinion, and this is across both Democrats and Republicans, was that we should be getting out. Really, mm -hmm. one of the things I noted in an earlier episode was that you know Donald Trump was really the person who changed the tone because he really gave the Republican Party a lot of cover to exit or to admit that the war was a mistake or at some point became a mistake. So what did the people who wanted to remain say? There were mainly two themes that uh, we saw. The first was on humanitarian issues. A lot of people said, look, we've achieved a lot of hard-fought gains for uh, Afghans, particularly women and children, uh, young girls especially, being able to go to school. That's a big deal. And if we walk away now, they might lose all of that. And then what, what was the point? We just spent 20 years trying to fight this and it disappears in a week or two or a month, that's, that's not right. And so that was one big camp saying, we took a commitment. We said we were going to improve the lives of ordinary Afghans. We're not finished yet. And if we leave now, that, that crumbles. A second camp was saying, we're not done with the original mission either. Yes, we might have got Osama bin Laden, but he was just one person. And if you're really trying to reduce the risk of uh, terrorist attacks in the future, then you need to stay because this place will be a breeding ground for the next terrorist cell or organization. And so we might go away and say, hey, you know, endless war is finished. But what if year two, five years from now, we have another 9-11 type attack? Boy, that, I mean, no one wants to even imagine that. But that's exactly the scenario you have to think about is did you enable something like this to happen in the future by withdrawing? Uh, one of the smarter comments I saw, and I say smarter, I'm not particularly well-versed in things on Afghanistan other than reading the factual, I'm not an expert by any means. Um, but one of the smarter comments I saw, at least I thought was, uh, one of our readers said, look, we have a presence in Germany um, and have had a presence in Germany since World War II. And why? Why did we do it? Of course, there are reasons uh, with NATO and and you know having a position that helps to uh, fend off Russian advances. But there was also an element of, look, Germany did some horrible atrocities in World War II. We need to stay and ensure that this doesn't slide back into it 20, 30, 40 years onwards. 
we do that in South Korea. We do that in a number of places where we have had battles and we maintain a presence long after. So this person said, why is this any different? You should maintain a presence. We've done it before. Do it again. I found that really interesting. And, you know, I, I searched through the responses and wanted to get a feel for you know, what people were saying, what the general sentiment was. And I, I think the theme of what was it all for seemed to be a big one. The Germany one I, th- I thought was really thoughtful. The, the key difference I'd cite, and, and this is something I learned from in the first episode on the subject where I interviewed a friend of mine who had served over there, is that Afghanistan is a very rough place. And I don't mean rough in the sense that there are warlords and there's Taliban and there's lots of guns and it can be lawless. I mean rough is in the sense that it is on a mountain it's effectively nestled in the Himalayas. Uh, it's a desert, but it's humid. Don't ask me how that happens. <laughs> and pretty much the only thing that grows there are opium poppies. And it is <laughs> it is an exceptionally difficult place. So to think that we're going to turn it into a Western-style democracy via our own grit and scrappiness and stick to is really overlooking a lot of geographic barriers, I think. Yeah. Again, I I thought it was a pretty thoughtful response myself. And I think there is an argument to be made that if we see another attack in another decade, it is from the region, it is squarely going to be blamed on our withdrawal. I'm interested too in the unsure folks, but were they kind of a mix of the stay and go crowd? It was actually a little bit of what you just said uh, earlier. Um, Sorry, Dan, I have that dog chewing on stuff, which is why I periodically look away. And she's the dog warning at the top of the episode. Yeah, sorry. She's chewing a soldering iron. Hang on. (laughs) Oh, really? Exciting. Good grief. My nephew does some uh, soldering, and so he's got some supplies in the nightmare. Anyway. Thank you for clarifying that, because my next question was, what's... What's with the soldering iron? Like, do you have some hobby I don't know about? Um, so the unsure folks uh, were a mix of, of um, opinions. I think the first one is actually very much, or, or the first major camp that I see is, is along the lines of what you said, which is Afghanistan is a really tough region. And it's called the graveyard of empires for a reason. Everyone who's ever gone in and tried to have some sort of presence has failed. It's extremely inhospitable. It's a, a, a slew of tribes that don't even like each other, don't speak the same language. And to think that a Western power is going to come in in this inhospitable, mountainous, desert region, somehow enforce a new world order, it's, it's never happened before. And so a lot of the unsure folks were like, there's so many reasons that you could say stay. But there's no winning this. Like there's there's not even anything called a win here. I don't even know what we're doing half the time. So I've actually said, uh, I think I said it in one of our previous podcasts that a lot of our poll questions are really hard. I mean, the truth is the news deals with hard topics. They're very seldom easy yes, no answers. So frankly, I think a lot of the time unsure is often the right answer, at least for me, because it's tough. Uh, and maybe if we had more expertise uh, on that topic, you can weigh in more thoughtfully. But particularly something like Afghanistan, I think short of 
foreign policy experts, military personnel, diplomats, local folks, Afghans, I think a lot of us just wouldn't understand the, the difficulty and complexity of this issue to definitively say things one way or the other. It's fine to say, I think we should leave or I think we should stay. But to think that you have the answers on this topic, boy, you, you need a lot of training and a lot of background, I think. Without a doubt. And I think the other thing that a lot of people don't recognize is we elect a president and we elect leaders to make very difficult decisions. And sometimes those decisions don't have a result you're necessarily going to pop the champagne over. Yeah. You know, sometimes there are two bad options and we just have to choose the one that that's the least bad, which I think for anybody who's voted in a presidential election <laughs> should be pretty familiar with. Yeah, it's it's why I think sorry, it's one of the things that I hope people this is wishful thinking, but I hope people take away is that you may not love the decisions our politicians make sometimes. And it's good. We should criticize them and argue about it. But truth be told, they're very seldom easy answers at their level. They represent a very broad and diverse constituency. And no matter how they would have voted or decided, the outcome will impact someone poorly and a lot of people poorly and a lot of people well. And they have to make trade-offs all the time. So the more I, I do these polls, the more I actually have sympathy for the issues that these folks are dealing with. I'm not saying I agree with them, but I'm also understanding that, man, that's hard. I don't know if I would have done any better, but it's hard. And so you did this you did this poll at the beginning of the withdrawal. The withdrawal starts to move along, and then you run another poll, correct? That's right. So a week later, we ran the poll saying, could the Taliban takeover have been prevented? But this was on the 17th of August, so Kabul had already fallen. And there we saw 45% say yes, again, with 300 plus votes. And so here were a lot of people saying, look, I agree that we should have, well, the previous poll saying, I agree we should have continued the withdrawal, but this entire takeover by the Taliban, that was not part of the plan. And mind you, you know, 38% said no. So close poll uh, and 17% said unsure. Again, a, a pretty tough breakdown. It wasn't a clear unanimous one, although certainly an edge to people saying the Taliban takeover could have been prevented. There was a lot of blame on President Biden and his actions. In fact, both in our comments and I'd seen elsewhere, there were several folks in the military that just felt betrayed by everything that happened. They felt like I had been there on multiple tours. We had worked so hard to build up the local capability, whether it was training their Afghan security forces, setting up uh, infrastructure, and then literally overnight in the span of a few weeks, everything we had spent 20 years working on was gone. And that's not okay. And that is on President Biden's, that's in his hands. So there were a lot of people that were really upset with how things went down. And I can understand that. I, I don't know if you know that necessarily changes people's minds and whether or not we should have left or you know, could that takeover have been avoided. But boy, I can understand the people who felt like Everything. I just spent so long working on this. We did so much with these guys and it just got wiped overnight. I, it, it must be an awful, awful feeling. Yeah, that was, so again, that was echoed in the first episode I did. 
And Benari, my guest, was he was really going through a lot of emotions. And his big thing was, I don't know who to blame. I don't know who to be mad at. And I think, you know, what I took away from that conversation and what I take away from that comment you left as well is really we as civilians. So we as the people who have been living our normal everyday lives through the last 20 years of the war on terror really need to take stock in what these folks are dealing with. And I think really need to do our best to certainly look back on it and ask, how could we have done things differently? How could we have done things better? How could we have avoided so much bloodshed? But do it in a way that doesn't flame the fires. Because I think what Benari said, and this kind of leads to my next point, was, what are you all mad at? What did you guys do? Like his question for every pundit out there and for everybody complaining is, what did you do during the last 20 years? Because the polling shows nobody cared. Yeah, that's true. That is what the polling shows. Nobody cared. And it's funny, I did the follow-up episode to Benari's was one with an expert on uh, the Vietnam War and presidential recordings. And he really talks about the politics of warfare. And it's interesting, if you look back on the polling during the Vietnam War, even when the bloodshed was at its highest, which was throughout the Nixon presidency, Nixon's approval rating never dropped below 50%. Wow. Not once. The approval of the Vietnam War was low. And you see this, you see this in W. Bush's presidency. You see this in Obama's presidency. The approval rating for the war is totally uh, uncoupled or, or is, is totally uh, uncorrelated to the approval rating of a president. And, and now Vietnam's an interesting one because there was the draft. So we, we felt as a people, the Amer- America felt more of the pain of the Vietnam War than I think we do now or we did over the last 20 years. And it, it that part really spoke to me because... You know, another complaint Benari had really was that he came home, you know, he, he was serving right after Osama bin Laden was killed. So he was over there during that year where they were trying to figure out what the mission was. And he said he came back and nobody knew the war was going on. And I, I think what a lot of us have to take away from this is that when we fight wars, number one, we forget and we only get mad when we lose. Yeah. I think that's about right. I saw a really good article a while ago that said if more sons and daughters of Congress people were in the military, their decisions on when to go to war and where would be quite different. Increasingly in the U.S., a smaller and smaller population serves over the past decades. So the people that are putting their lives at risk and going off to fight these missions, many of us don't know them, aren't friends with them, aren't in the same circles as them. And therefore, yeah, we forget what they're out there doing. And so I feel bad for them. I feel upset at us pushing our forces into battles and putting these people's lives at risk, in some cases needlessly, at least it seems to me. So... I think your your friend is really right. A lot of people just weren't aware or it wasn't that important. And now all of a sudden at the withdrawal point, suddenly everyone is an expert and has an opinion on it. But I, I, I think what, what I hope, at least at the factuals discussion and, and the articles that we link to suggest is it's a complex topic. 
There are people for and against it, even within the military, even those that have real on-the-ground expertise. Some people are like, I don't know what the mission was for years. I don't know what we were doing. We should have left a long time ago. What can you say we achieved in the last five years? Seriously. Others are saying, no, you completely butchered this. We did do a lot. Here's this, here's that. I can point to this. And you left and it was gone in two weeks. So if maybe the only good thing that comes out of this or one good thing is, once again, all Americans realize what it means to spend a lot of money and, and time and, and people in a foreign nation. 40% folks, that's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. An interesting thing I saw was there, in some of the responses, there still seemed to be this, this idea that, that the role of our military was to in some way control outcomes or control certain aspects of the world. And did that sentiment change as the withdrawal went on? I think just the, the, maybe the lowest point in the withdrawal was when that bomb went off. And like I said, 12 or I think 13 U.S. service members were killed. That really was just awful. And then I think as people were seeing, there was that, there was the pictures of, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing. And uh, for those of us that have lived long enough, there were memories of what Vietnam was like. And when we pulled out of Vietnam, those final few days, it was like that. People hanging onto helicopters, just trying to get out of the place. So it looked like that. There were definitely a lot of people that, while they may have voted, yes, we, we should get out, they were not at peace with that decision. It looked bad. It felt bad. It felt wrong at times. The, the third poll we ran was, should we accept more refugees? Uh, and 572 people voted. And actually, that was a pretty clear indicator. 64% said yes which is particularly notable because 
you know, across our base, we've run lots of polls on immigration, refugees, etc. Most of the time, the context is around the southern border of the United States, where we've had a lot of challenges, of course. And I would say, by and large, our base is either 50-50 or slightly against accepting more refugees, or at least having any sort of, certainly no sort of special treatment for uh, illegal immigrants. That seems pretty clear whenever we poll our base. So this time, to have a very clear consensus saying, no, we need to accept refugees, sort of speaks to how even people, whether you voted yes or no, were like, we owe it to these folks. Their country is disintegrating, and this is the least we can do. Bring them here. It's goodness. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants, all that stuff. But uh, I think that was, that was a positive we can take away. Again, lots of things that could be done better, but most Americans believe that, okay, this is the one thing we can do still and to try to right the situations. Of course, there were lots of special categories. You know, a lot of people, I was very impressed that people took the time to talk about Afghan allies like interpreters who really helped. And many of them put their lives and their families' lives at risk by collaborating with U.S. forces in any capacity, interpreters and local guides and stuff. Like, if you're seen as, oh, you worked with, you know, the foreign presence, I don't know what happens when we leave. Like, does your family get executed? That's all. I mean, that's awful. So it was nice to see that the American public appears to be in favor of saying, at least let's do this one last thing and try to make it better. And out of the remainder, how many were unsure versus just straight up no's? 27% were no and unsure was 9%. So less than a third were straight no. And, and generally, you know, we, again, we run these polls every day on, on questions. It's extremely rare to get like a blowout, you know, like 90% or 80% saying one thing or the other. I think sort of the nature of democracy is that people will have disagreements so I think usually if you start to see anything over 60 or 70% one way, it's a good indication that, okay, most of the country feels that way. That, that sounds like a good path forward. You'll never get everyone for, for any decision. Yeah. And so what were, the, what were the no's? What were some of the trends there? Yeah. Some of those were, you know, saying, look, this is not just a U.S. only problem. And if you look at uh, refugee acceptance, the U.S. actually has been very good at accepting refugees. I think we had a chart on the poll that said the U.S. trounces all other countries combined in refugee acceptance going back to 1982, where double or sometimes triple. That was not quite so in 2017 where they were the same, but nonetheless, the U.S. generally tends to dominate. And after President Trump's uh, election, then the U.S. went uh, below other countries. So what some people said is our history has always been that we've done all this. Uh, other countries need to step up as well. So that was one of them. I think the the other uh, questions were, or the other no's are saying, we've already got a huge problem at home. Look, we've got the homeless population. We've got the influx at the southern border. We've got all these things. Do we really have the wherewithal and time to accept more refugees? But, you know, again, so I think... What's nice about that, it wasn't so much of a vote against Afghans. It's not saying we don't want those people or we don't trust those people. It was more saying, why is it just on us? Or don't we have other burning fires that we need to deal with? And 
certainly the things that people are mentioning, you know, homelessness is on the rise in the United States and, and border influx is a real issue. So they're not wrong about that. And they're just saying, oh, are these the right priorities? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the whole specter of terrorism didn't make it up because I do feel I, I would expect that. I think less so. I think, you know, of course, uh, there were maybe one or two comments saying, even on the yes side, saying we should, but, you know, let's make sure we really vet them because we want to make sure that we're, uh, you know, getting the right type of people. But it may be the fact that, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it was around this time. Maybe it was the images. Maybe we don't give the American people enough credit for understanding the situation in Afghanistan as being so bad and having... A big heart. The Americans are like, okay, let's let's try to do a good thing for these people who are really suffering. And yeah, there's lots of reasons to push back and say, well, there's a lot of terrorists that come from there or Muslim people or what have you. And nothing. I didn't even see the word Muslim, I think, once in the comments, which was really good. I mean, again, this is the factual readership. Who knows if it's perfectly descriptive of, you know, the United States. But it's encouraging to me that our readers, which are a mix of liberals and conservatives and everything in between, are not focused on divisive, hateful material, but really around the issue. And if you are saying no, then it's about priorities and what the nation can handle, but nothing about Afghan people itself. Yeah, it never devolves into like the more primitive debates that I think we see on a lot of other platforms. Interesting fact I'll throw out there too for you and and for the listener and for your readership is, you know, one of the biggest cities to take Afghan refugees is? If I had to guess, and I know Fremont in California used to have a big Afghan population. Yep. So one of the biggest cities is Oklahoma City. Oh, really? Believe it or not. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And again, I'll talk about the partisan stereotypes that we all know, which is Generally, when you think of somebody who might be more hawkish on immigration, more uh, more hawkish on border security, and less likely to take in refugees, you think of of the right. And of course, Oklahoma is ruby red. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you and I revisit a lot in these conversations, which is that what happens on the ground is so often contrary to the stereotypes. And if you look at Oklahoma City, they have opened themselves up. That's pretty cool. You know, one thing that I know, me and myself being an immigrant, I know one really interesting thing that happens on the ground, which is a lot of immigrants come to the United States to study for higher education, and particularly doctors. And as you probably know, when you finish your um, schooling, you have to get placed at a hospital, and there's this matching process. And a lot of times you go to places where other people don't want to go. So if you're in the elite schools in the coast, everyone wants to be at like Mass General or something, but it's the hardest hospital to get placed at. So you wind up oftentimes in the Midwest and in these smaller towns. And what's really interesting is the medical population in some of these towns is somewhat disproportionately immigrant for this reason. And so if you're someone who lives in Oklahoma City, my guess is if you've ever been to the ER, if you've been to the hospital, you probably met an immigrant doctor. And I think there's something really nice about that because you're being tended to by someone from this other country. And I mean, you have a real relationship there, you know, patient-doctor relationship. 
And I hope that every one of those interactions people leave with, like, they're just part of my community. Yeah, they might be of Afghan background or whatever, Pakistani background, doesn't matter, but part of my community. They're the doctor. They're this, they're that. They're... So it's pretty cool. I know a lot of Indian doctors that have served in fairly rural parts in Canada and, and the Midwest, and they're quite happy. They feel like real members of the community there. You know, I grew up in a small town in, uh, in Canada, Brantford, Ontario, which is like an hour southwest of Toronto. And um, because it's a small town, it's a farming community, it has elements of Midwestishness to it, even though it's not truly Midwest. And I always thought the people were very down to earth. Definitely when I was there in the early 90s, there weren't a lot of immigrants. And so you'd see the kinds of things you'd expect, you know, bullying and some racism and things like that. But by and large, I thought the people were actually quite nice. And so I think, yeah, if you don't live in some places, this kind of ties back to Afghanistan in an interesting way, which is when you're not from some place, it's hard to really know what that place is like. It's easy to just make a judgment call on the Midwest by what you read or what you see. If you're not from there, do you really know? And similarly, imagine, I mean, if we can't even know the Midwest in the United States, what do we really know about Afghanistan? How many of the people who are commenting have ever been there and seen it? I mean, I've never been there. I've been close in northern India and in Rajasthan, but I wouldn't know the first thing. I, I, nothing. Literally, I would be totally, completely lost. So yeah, I just maybe a little bit of humility that we don't fully understand that area or the people. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, that website again is www.thefactual.com. The Factual, F-A-C-T-U-A-L, for those of you who need help. I'll have a link to the site and additional resources in the show notes on ydhty.com slash en slash episodes. Or just go to the homepage and click on the episodes link in the menu. Tomato, tomato. Now, this episode did a lot to reinforce what I learned in my conversation with Ken Hughes two episodes back. As the criticisms people had over our withdrawal from Afghanistan were similar to the ones people had for Vietnam. And as the polling during Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan show casualties, popular opinion over the war, and even the draft don't weigh heavily on a president's approval rating. The economy, however, does. And to that end, I would like to humbly submit a proposal. Put into law that all foreign wars must have a pay-as-you-go provision funded by a tax hike. It'll ensure an overwhelming number of Americans support the war and it'll also remind us every April that we have people stationed abroad. Either that, or simply reform the electoral process so the people who've been protesting our forever wars for the last 20 years have a voice during election season. Again, tomato, tomato. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putnam. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Shine on, you crazy diamond. <laughs> <laughs>